Hi everyone, welcome to our fourth Universalist service video. My name is Reverend Skylar Vogel. I serve as one of the ministers here. I use he, him pronouns, and I'm so glad you're joining us for these videos. What follows are selections from our service on April 10th. We are talking about the state of American religion in the past, now how the pandemic has affected it, and what that means for us at Fourth Universalist as we continue our path towards uh, growth and, and living our full selves here in New York City. In this video, you will hear our reading, you'll hear my reflection, and then you'll hear a discussion between myself and our Director of Religious Education, Ember Kelly. We hope you enjoy all three of these pieces of video, and we hope that you'll check out past videos, past podcasts, and we post them every week on our website, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and your favorite podcast streaming sites. If you like what you see, we hope you'll give us a positive review to like and comment and share and subscribe to help spread the Fourth Universalist message a little further. Our community is located on the land of the Muncie Lenape people. This acknowledgement is part of our continued effort to dismantle ongoing legacies of oppression. We invite you to join us in this work as we embrace the Eighth UU Principle. Thank you again for watching. We begin with our reading. American poet, writer, and thinker, Parker Palmer. It is a poem entitled Harrowing. The plow has savaged the sweet field, misshapen clods of earth kicked up, rocks and twisted roots exposed to view last year's growth demolished by the blade. I have plowed my life this way, turned over a whole history, looking for the roots of what went wrong until my face is ravaged, furrowed, scared. Enough, the job is done. Whatever's been uprooted, let it be, seedbed for the growing that's to come. I have plowed to unearth last year's reasons. The farmer plows to plant for a greening season. My first two congregations were places of scarcity and struggle. I was a religious educator then, like Ember, telling stories to kids and running Sunday schools. The first congregation was only 10 years old when I arrived, and it had grand ambitions. It was founded by our denomination on the theory that if you fund a brand new church and fund it as if it was a big church, it would become big. You, you megachurches, here we were coming. Or so we hoped. 
That congregation had a lot of money, and for a time, they were the golden child of Unitarian Universalism. The only problem was the theory was wrong. Funding a congregation as if it were big does not make them grow. They stayed small. During my year there, that money ran out. It didn't help that the whole country was going through the recession in 2008, or that a hurricane had recently torn through town, forcing half of the city's businesses to permanently close. So the congregation was forced to choose between hoping for a miracle and drastically cutting everything in their budget. They chose to cut everything. Their minister down to half time, their programs, and me. I landed my next church in the suburbs of Chicago, also a religious educator. Before I had arrived, unbeknownst to me, they had lost a huge contract from a tenant and had to make drastic cuts to their budget, in particular mine. I find myself managing a children's religious education program with $20,000 less than my predecessor and was supervising a staff team that was working 30 hours a week less per week, all with the exact same expectations as the year before. Both of these congregations, in addition to these budget challenges, had severe conflict between their leader, lay leadership and their clergy. It was not me. And predictably, Membership struggled, attendance struggled, volunteering plummeted, and morale across the board was awful. No one wanted to come services. If you did come, you would hear complaining and arguing. It was bad. I have learned since those first two congregations how common these stories actually are. Religion in America is struggling. Religious communities are struggling. Congregations are closing at a rate of almost 4,000 per year. Researchers believe that in the next 10 years, it may be double or even triple that per year. We know that for the first time in American history, more than half of Americans are unaffiliated with a religious community. Now only 47% of people are part of religion. That's down from 70% in 1999, 47 to 70. Beyond membership, those who identify with zero religious tradition has risen astronomically. In 2007, 16% of people said, I have no religion, 16%. Today, it's almost 30. And of course, the pandemic has only made these trends more extreme. Attendance across America is down 6%, and this decrease is much greater for younger people and older people. Another study showed that in Christian congregations, a third of their membership has gone and not come back. Finally, and often overlooked, many religious buildings around the country are beginning to fail. So many were built the exact same time 
and after years of deferred maintenance, they are collectively reaching a breaking point, a place of no return with congregations that do not have resources to fix them. These trends are powerful and they are sobering. They speak to a cultural force that is beyond the power of any faith tradition, congregation, place, or clergy. We are all swimming against a powerful current of decline. Just this week in our neighborhood, news broke that one of our neighboring churches, a good friend of ours, faces a $25 million roof repair, or their building is going to collapse. We, a few years ago, faced a $1.6 million roof repair, and we barely did it. How do you do $25 million? Another church not too far from here has a steeple that they can neither afford to fix or take down. What do you do if it's in danger of collapsing? How do you survive that? In Midtown, our sister Unitarian Universalist congregation has sold their building and moved to only afternoon services after 100 years of perhaps being the flagship congregation for a good part of those years. Now they meet in the afternoons sharing space with a Christian church. Our sister congregation in Queens is likely going to close. This is happening across the country. It's happening right here in our neighborhood, in our city. In many ways, our congregation, the Fourth Universalist Society, has been very fortunate. We have been in a time of plenty. We've managed to fight this strong current of decline, even though we swim against it like everybody else. Our membership has increased, doubled. Our budget has increased. New groups have been born and flourished. Our justice media ministry was covered by national media, and we did raise the money to save our roof and our building, lest we have to sell it and move. But it is not reasonable for us to assume we can evade the challenging tides around us forever. We are not invincible or immune from these currents. The pandemic for us has been tough. It has wiped out our event rental income, while inflation has increased staffing costs, which we offer for cost of living adjustments. The real estate market has saddled us with a reduced lease with our major tenant, and our building, despite the new roof, is still old. You don't have to look too carefully to see other things that we need to fix. And perhaps most powerfully for us in the moment, as a congregation with many non-New Yorkers, people from other places in this country, other places around the world, we have been hit during the pandemic of, by folks who just have moved away, left New York, good leaders, strong members, who've joined us now online, but are hard to offer their strong leadership in person. All the while, being online 
struggling to find ways of increasing leadership, nurturing new folks, because online is simply not the same as in person. All is not bad, though. There are still ways that we are fighting this current strongly. Attendance is equal or perhaps even higher to what it was before the pandemic. We include the folks online, of which there, I think right now, are 60 or so screens. We're working on a balanced budget for next year without needing to cut staff into the heart of our programming. And we have a plan to increase rentals and make our building more desirable. You see the cool lights that have already started here. But perhaps the biggest challenge that we face as a congregation and that religion faces across the country because of the pandemic, it's something that lies beyond any of our control. It's a national challenge. It's that everybody that I talk to is so tired about doing everything after two years of all of this. Since coming back from the pandemic, from my family leave two weeks ago, I've heard just about in every conversation how tired folks are, how burnt out around the edges we are, how we're pulled in a million different directions, juggling so many different commitments, not just in this community, but everywhere in our lives. In life, it could be at work, with family and friends. Maybe it's about health. Maybe we're struggling with a diagnosis or hospital visits that during a time of a pandemic just increased that level of anxiety and stress. Maybe you're sick of two years of struggling with your kids having to wear masks in school or be sent home or have school canceled if there's an outbreak and find childcare, which is expensive. Maybe you're a single person who's exasperated by dating in New York, which I hear is exasperating already, and you're having to juggle concerns about partners being safe. Maybe you're working in a place that doesn't respect the safety, your safety, is asking you to come back sooner than you'd like. Or this is the weight of the world. You see a war in Ukraine, and it's depressing. You see climate change, and it's depressing. You see the state of democracy in this country and around the world, and it's depressing too, and that is a burden on your soul. We know that life is anxious and tiring, even in normal times. And prolonged trauma attached to the pandemic has left so many of us running on fumes. There is a farming concept that I've always loved, that of a fallow field. It describes an agricultural technique that allows a plot of land to rest and replenish itself. Nothing is planted there by the farmer. Nothing is cultivated. There are no grand plans for that field, no expectations. A fallow field just sits. To an ignorant eye, it looks wasted and unproductive, doing nothing at all. 
but the farmer knows that from its stillness comes regeneration. Nutrients are being restored. The soil is renewing. And after a time, crops can be planted again and new life can grow. We know that now is not a time of plenty. But it is also not a time for despair. Our story cannot be as individuals, as a country, as communities, always that of growth and progress. The field can always be so full in its harvest. It is okay for this to be a fallow chapter in our story. We must not see it as a defeat or a disappointment or as our fault. We know the current runs strong against us no matter what stream we're swimming in. And sometimes to survive is simply a victory. So I want to give you permission to rest. I want you to come into this space and not feel the obligation to fix or save anything. I want you to feel okay to not be 100%. To feel okay to be muddling through your life, your job, your relationships, this congregation. I want you to feel it's okay to put down the burden of making everything work exactly like it used to, as good or as perfect as whatever we remember it being. I want you to feel like you can make this place, this hour every week, a refuge, a sanctuary, an oasis from all of those expectations that feels so heavy on us. What I want for every one of you is just that you're happy and well and whole. You can, of course, volunteer here as much as you like. We hope it will center you and inspire you and give you a chance to make deeper connections. But know that at least here, there is no existential threat that requires you sacrifice your wholeness for our collective survival. We'd rather have you here well than working. That way, sometime in the future, when the world, we pray, has settled down and you have been replenished and the fear of burning out has receded and you have sunken deeply into that peaceful, calming soil of what grounds you, then the next chapter can begin. Then together we can nurture those seeds that have been quietly growing. Shoots of energy will emerge again, and there will be a bountiful harvest we can all enjoy. It will be beautiful then, I know. But it will be no more beautiful than the empty, fallow fields that we live in now, surviving against all odds, becoming well again. Because the fallow fields are sacred too. While our world may continue to feel like it spirals out of control, while American religion may continue to decline, I am confident we can emerge from this fallow time as vibrant as we've ever been. We have all made it this far. Not easily, not unbruised, 
But we've made it. We have bucked the trends and currents before, and we'll keep doing it again and again. I know it. If we do, we just need to rest in that fallow fields of this chapter. May it be so, and amen. Reverend Schuyler, it's so good to get the chance to sit down once again. Thank you for a, I want to say affirming. Um, I think in some senses, I think um, a lot of people have been struggling with with burnout recently. And I think that uh, it was really important to have that, uh, you know, said from the pulpit that it's okay to be to be feeling those feelings. So thanks for really affirming message today. Well, you're welcome, and, and uh, I, uh, I hope that I hope that it resonated with with everyone. And, uh, and you know, whether you are a member of this congregation or not, or whether or not you are a regular participant or not, uh, I hope that it felt felt important and felt like it spoke to you in some in some way. Um, because uh, whether we're struggling in this congregation or or otherwise, we all experience exhaustion right now. We're all feeling being overwhelmed and. Um, it's really important for us to not feel like we kind of carry the world on our shoulders like Atlas, because um, not only is this just not that just not true, the world will not rise or fall based on any one of us, but ultimately it, it short sighted, it, it hurts us more than it hurts anything else. You know, I, I was tempted to say, well, it will rise or fall without me, but that's uh... <laughs> we'll see. Amber, you're leaving us for a couple of weeks in a uh, not permanently, fortunately, but. Uh, we will see how how we all do without your your exemplary uh, leadership. That's why I'm preparing a whole a whole list of here's here's what to do on Sunday while I'm gone. Uh, <laughs> I'm prepared, but no, you know I think that as you point out, this isn't just us feeling tired right now. This is, I mean, most of society. In all honesty, I mean, I think it's the reason why we've seen people kind of I hesitate to use the word give up, but I'm, I'm trying to think of a better word where. People are just kind of exhausted by COVID. People are just kind of worn down. And that has impacted the church too. I mean, there's already some some bigger trends going, which we'll kind of talk about in a little bit. But this this exhaustion is a whole society-wide feeling, I think, right now. Um, but I mean, this isn't something that society is, it's not the first time this has happened. Um, and it's not the first time this has happened for the church too. I think that you know, you point out a little bit that there's been these times in fourth use history that we have good times and bad times and that that happens. And, but I think this also really shows up in wider church history too, the times of revival and the times where everyone's preaching about how, you know, how worldly and sinful everyone is now because they're not going to church. <laughs> so these are, these are patterns that aren't just right now. We're not the first people we can look at the resources from thousands of years of people dealing with the same problem. That's right. That's right. Uh, on the national level, um, the American fascination with the 1950s extends beyond American religion, but it also, but it is especially tied to our image of what what religion looks like in America for us today. We think about uh, churches that have been declining since the 50s. Uh, you know, everyone everyone went to church in the 50s or went to some religious community in the 50s. Um, and it's true that the 50s 
were a very popular time to go to be part of a religious community. But it was actually quite an anomaly. Uh, you know, you, if you look back throughout American history, and people have not been particularly pious about going to the church on Sundays and being part of the religious communities. And so the popular imagination of America as a church-going place, um, there is truth to that at times, and there have been moments of, of revival, like you said, Ember. Um, but the way that we perceive it today is, is based on this peak moment in the 50s that, that was not representative of, sort of the general trend of American religious attendance or participation. Um, and in some ways, what we're seeing now, which is a, a pretty steep decline uh, and, and drop in this, the levels now are, are much more akin to what we've seen across American history. Um, uh, and there's lots of reasons for that, and I'm not a, I'm not a, a, a church historian, but, but I, I do think it, it inspire, can inspire us to some level of grace um, and, uh, and even forgiveness for ourselves as, as people who care about religious communities, that it's not, it's not about us, right? Um, and there are things that we can do to be um, more accessible, to speak to the moment of time uh, that we're in, to be relevant. But, um, but there are larger cultural forces at work, as we're seeing, right? And I talk about that in my sermon, that, um, that we're, all, we're all in that current of, of congregational decline. Um, and congregations is just sort of the, the institution that represents organized religion, right? Because that's, that's sort of the, mo the focal point. But, but you see that trend across other institutions that are religious, um, other forms of metrics around how you define what religious is. Well, you know, one of the ones that as we were preparing for this conversation that we were talking about is um, generational differences. Because I mean, as you point out, the, the 50s were kind of the, 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 strange, the strange time, but, you know, boomers had this very high religiosity. And now you see, um, I, I saw, I believe it was a TikTok. Um, I, I saw something that was saying that for Gen Z and for millennials that you know, the, the agnostic or nuns or like vaguely spiritual, but not tied to anything that's nearing like 40, almost 50% um, versus like previous generations where that was maybe like 10, 20. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's wider cultural changes happening um, for folks. Absolutely right. The baby boomer generation was raised mostly in the fifties, right? Fifties and early sixties. Uh, and they grew up in that peak moment of, in, uh, American religious history. They're brought to church. We know that those who are not raised going to church or any religious community are far less likely to, as adults, participate. Um, it's just not, it appears to just not be in sort of the operating schema of, of people who are not raised. They don't think about doing it. They don't want to do it. It's not what they consider a good use of their time. Um, and so, you know, these things snowball, right? So the more you have people who don't do it and the more generations pass, um, religious communities really have to wrestle with so who are they serving um, and you know, it's a bit different for Unitarian Universalists and I know we're talking about that uh, as well later but um, uh, we are still not immune from these trends I think that's curious because you know especially like how converts is coming from the evangelical world you know the people who like I was lost in complete sin and I was you know, dealing drugs and doing all these horrible things. And I became a Christian, you know, they're held up as like, wow, look, like all of these people that we're reaching, but that really is a small percentage compared to many of the denominations, many of the congregations that grow simply by having a new generation of kids. Um, that that is often, that is often the case for, for a lot of religious history um, that 
that it's mainly there. And I, I do, I found that particularly fascinating that you mentioned that because one of the really interesting things for me as someone who grew up just so incredibly religious is talking to people who don't have that context at all and realizing just how strange it was. Like, especially having grown up in, in a very specific borderline cultish um, right-wing evangelicalism, like to, to talk to people who just never went to church and it's like, wait, what? Like these weren't <laughs> universal experiences. <laughs> It's it's different, um, and yeah. there isn't that interest. There's not like, wow, I, you know, just can't. And if there ever is that interest, like in in the case of, I even think of my my own parents who um, had left the church because they didn't like what they had seen from their parents. But then when I was born, said, hey, we need to go to church again. We have a kid. So a lot of times, that's the only thing that maybe will change someone older's mind. Will be like, oh, we have a kid, so like we should give them a good like religious upbringing. Um, it's, it's really fascinating the, the things that cause this formation, the faith formation. Yeah, I, and I think, uh, I think that's something that is one of the ways that people do come back to religious life um, is that they have children and they think about, oh, I, I wanna give them a similar experience to what I had. Maybe they didn't need, as parents needed before they had children, but they, they want that. There's something that spoke to them, resonated with them Felt like it shaped them as human beings that they want for their kids. Um, um, although even that is changing. I mean, one of the things when I was a religious educator, we talked a lot about is, um, uh, particularly from a certain generation, like that expectation was much more true with our parents' generation, both of us, right? My parents are boomers, um, than with our our generation. Um, even though we we both go to church, obviously a lot. We both have kids who you know are in this program. Um, but I think we're seeing that less and less so. Uh, and so, um, you know, what, what inspires people to come be part of a religious community, I think is, is an open question, uh, you know, particularly based on, particularly if you're not already grounded in one. Um, and, we're, and we're seeing that, right? That like most of growth, we think about like Mormons, the Church of Latter-day Saints and their missionaries, right? But most of their growth doesn't come from missionaries. They don't, it's, it's not, I, I read somewhere that, you know, you're lucky if you get one or two converts from your two years of doing that. Most of it comes from population growth, right? Um, of families having children and having them be raised Mormon. And you use Unitarian Universalists. Our children don't tend to stick around Unitarian Universalism. They do, I think, often and most always are raised and then keep the values that are intrinsic to Unitarian Universalism, progressive views commitment to social justice, open-mindedness, uh, non-doctrinal spirituality. But whether they choose to grow up and then join a UU congregation, it's pretty rare. Um, uh, it's pretty rare. And so we have, so we live off converts generally as a denomination, as a congregational system. And so the question for us is, what happens when all the rest of the congregation, other religious communities are all losing their people, right? And so it's the, the spigot of, of people leaving other congregations and the religious communities starts to dribble a bit more than flow, right? And so we start getting less people, because we have seen, again, is that we don't see people who aren't raised anything coming to UU congregations either. It's, they're almost always from communities, uh, you know, Catholic, evangelical, Protestant, uh, Jewish synagogues. Um, very rarely, it's not, not unheard of, but very rarely do folks just come from totally un, 
church background, particularly by themselves. Maybe they'll have a partner who was something, and they say, we want to go someplace. So Unitarian Universalism is the sort of the, the logical step. But, um, but we'll see. You know, we're seeing how congregations are closing in, in UU spaces, right? We're seeing how, even in the New York City area, a lot of our congregations that were once able to afford full-time ministers are, are cutting the half-time. Uh, we, we're seeing Queens close, like I talk about. We're seeing community church. We have to move to afternoon services. So there is a real, it's a, it, this is something that starts happening, right, when it's not in the ethical, uh, not ethical, but in the, in the, the cultural uh, milieu that we're, that we're in anymore. When I think that, you know, so, not, not, not to go back to the 50s again, but so much of, uh, like, you know, I even think of our own church building, which was not the 50s, but like 1890s, which was a very big time for our community, like with a minister who was bringing in thousands of thousands of people just to hear him preach, and then they would leave right as soon as the sermon was over. And for New York uh, congregations, too, not just us. You, all these old buildings were built at times of great wealth and great religious participation, right? That's why all these buildings are from the same era, because people had the money and were interested in going to church. Right, and so now we're, it's, a, it's a cultural adjustment. Mm -hmm. You have to adjust to the moment. When I think, you know, one of the things that, that we've talked about um, is the pan pandemic has shifted things perhaps even more, you know, and I, th I think about it as you named, like that even families like that are having kids, they're maybe not quite coming to do church quite the way they used to. And I think that we've seen many extracurricular activities suddenly encroaching more on Sundays. Like that was like unheard of when I was growing up. Like you didn't, you, you didn't do Sunday activities. Like that was... That was um, against the rules. <laughs> so, no soccer practice. No, uh, yeah, you just one scheduled on Sunday morning. It was right? so now those sorts of things. So now, you know, in a sense, parents are having to decide: like, do I want them to have this team activity, or do I want them to have religion? Do you know what? What they have to make calculations, and um, in a lot of senses, especially because of the pandemic, I think I've talked about this with with ample amounts of people, is that not just you use, but religion as a whole because of the pandemic and because of moving online for a while and a variety of things like that it's very i mean as well as like the whole mega church movement it's very much moved to seeing religion as somewhat of like a service that's being offered to people um that we're basically like somewhat of a customer service industry that we we offer you here here is religion we'll we'll give you one religion <laughs> um for your for your um for your time but you know, I think that there is still an undercurrent, and especially I see it in the UU world, of trying to push for church as a community and seeing that as an alternative to this model. Like, you know, I think they can coexist, um, but how, how do we make sure to remember that part, you know, I think that part of what draws people in is if it's an inspiring community, not just like, yes, interesting services will bring people in too, like interesting opportunities and things to do but if it's not if there's not that feeling of community i think that that's really what what brings people in the door yeah no i think it's a really interesting question um we know that the congregations that are growing right now are almost always large congregations mega churches congregations that are able to provide services whether it's i mean not worship services but but perhaps are follow that more model of you can come in you get a well-done, professionally produced worship experience. There are tons of programs and educational opportunities that you can kind of enroll in, like a, like a little mini university. Um, you know, there you can kind of plug yourself into this system, right? Uh, 
rather than what most Unitarian Universalist congregations are, and frankly, most congregations in America are, which are much more, um, they're much more community-led, right? They're much more lay-led. People volunteer for things, that's how things happen. Um, but people aren't, like you're saying, they don't necessarily want to do that anymore. And we're seeing that, I think, New York is sort of often a bellwether of the larger nation. We certainly see that at Fourth U, where, where often folks, you know, they want to come in and have their children have a religious education experience. They may not want to volunteer to teach uh, for Sundays a month. Um, when I was a religious educator, we really didn't have problems finding people teaching. Um, it was just kind of what people did. Of course, I have kids, I'm going to teach, right? We actually mandated it. You know, one parent had to do it in order to have their kids be part of it, and we never got any complaints. In fact, we had people fighting over which classes to teach. Um, you know, it's just unheard of here. Um, um, and so I think, you know, how do we, how do we navigate that tension between, between wanting to offer really high quality services, but not wanting to fall into the transactional nature where, where people, where we're just sort of a service provider, right? Like we provide good services, that we provide good programs, all of which I think at Fourth Universalist we do. Uh, but the trick is that we're not also not big enough. We're not a corporate-sized congregation, right? And so there's always going to be, we're always going to have to need support from the from the the lay membership, the lay the, the laity uh, to help things run in a certain way. And so um, that is a pinch that our community will feel, and you know is feeling to some degree right now because of the pandemic. Um, that larger congregations, you just pay everyone to do everything, right? Uh, don't have to worry about. Uh, we, we are definitely not, you know, Joel Osteen's 40,000 member church. Uh, we do not have uh, that, that level of budget. <laughs> you know, yeah. but that being said, there are many great volunteer opportunities. Um, you're not required to volunteer, but we do have lots of ways that you can find a plug in, whether it's with our justice teams, whether it is with our religious education, which we have lead teachers. So if you're nervous about actually having to like teach kids you don't have to be the one who is leading the lesson you're there to, to offer support um, or we have our amazing greeting team we have our hospitality team that you know make sure that we have coffee hour there's just so, there's many places that you can uh, get plugged in to help really keep that feel of community um, here at, at fourth universalist right and i mean it, obviously volunteer opportunities are, are, are helpful for the congregation as a whole right and it's not just they're helpful for me or for ember um, you know, yeah. we appreciate it, but but you know, we also hope, and I think Ember, you work really hard on this, as do all of our, our staff who work with volunteers, that we want these experiences of volunteering to also be nurturing for your own soul and for your own well-being, to build connections so we're not so isolated in our lives. And we all know how isolating New York can be, um, and how overwhelming it can be, and, and that these opportunities that we offer for volunteering, um, you're not just a cog in a wheel, right? You're not just you're not just doing stuff because like we need you to do it. You're doing it, we hope, because it fulfills some spiritual need in yourself that um, that we try to make logistically very simple and easy to do. You know, Ember provides lessons. The lead teachers are the the go-to person. Uh, the greeters, you know, you just got to say hi to people and be friendly on Sunday morning. Uh, I would love to be a greeter. If I wasn't a minister, I would be the greeter at my congregation because. Just gonna say hi to people and say welcome and be proud of your space and help them feel like it's their home, uh, which is a nice thing to do. So um, we try to make these easy, uh, easy on ramps, but um, but people are so tired, and that's part of what the sermon's about this week too, right? Is that just how tired people are and how there's so many obligations that we have, uh, and in some ways we feel beaten down, um, not just by our own lives but by the world. You know, 
the war in Ukraine is depressing, climate change is depressing, um, state of democracy in America is depressing. Um, you know, uh, it's hard not to feel like the world is depressing. And so, how do we how do we turn that from feeling like we can't do anything from that, um, but actually find ways to give ourselves energy? And so, we work really hard at Fourth U. I think, Ember, you can disagree with me, but to leave people <laughs> when you leave our services and leave on Sunday that people feel better about their lives and feel better about the world than, than, than more down, um, and that it's an energy boost rather than an energy, energy suck. Uh, you know, we're not, we don't wanna be energy vampires uh, here. Well, I think, you know, I, I would agree. And I think that, you know, you, you mentioned uh, the spiritually, spiritually fulfilling. You know, I think with like the option to, to like help out with the kids, that like, I think that's, that's building uh, cross-generational relationships and you know I think um, you know people people love you know last week with the first time for all ages on the stairs these kids are, are brilliant and amazing and funny and just bring you know a lot of joy I think that that's one of the things that really leaves me um, energized on a Sunday is getting to interact with these kids and get to know them um, and so I think that you know that's you know a, a beautiful thing finding that that place that can be spiritually fulfilling and I I, I believe that we are having those opportunities for folks here at Fourth Universalist. So if you need them, find them. That's right, that's right. And if you just need a place to rest and be in a beautiful space and listen to some good music and hopefully some in interesting words, it's also a good place. Um, um, and so we, we try to walk this line between wanting to be a place of sanctuary and rest and also a place of connection uh, and giving back. Uh, and we're not always perfect at it, of course, because it's impossible to be perfect. and we're just people trying our best, but um, uh, we also want to empower you to, as people listening and watching, to make those judgments, right, what you need best for yourselves in this moment of, of great stress and great burden, um, and how you can take care of yourself and how we can be helpful and be part of that, that self-care that you need, you need to do, as we all do. Self-care is very important. I, you know, I kind of wish that we had the, the copyright ability to play Walk the Lion now as, as an outro, um, but alas, I don't think that one's in the budget. <laughs> I'll write a letter, you know, to the, to the cash estate Cash, to see. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think, I think that that's right. And so thank you so much for, for sitting down uh, and for talking and for sharing this message with us today. Oh, thanks, Amber. Thank you all for listening, watching, and, and uh, take care of yourselves out there.